This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level. Information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Hi everyone, welcome to The Coolest Show. I am not Rev Yearwood. This is Destiny Hodges, one of the producers. Um, and today I have the honor of being joined by Michelle Mahaka, one of my friends, and Vic Barrett, also one of my friends, folks I'm in community with. Before we get into the interview, I do wanna do a trigger warning. As you know, during the month of May, we've been covering care and repair. We've been talking about grief, anxiety, genocide, suicide, um, and a host of other harms in the movement space. So if you need time, if you need space, please take that. Please take a deep breath, drink a sip of water, um, and know that here at The Coolest Show, we love you. And we're having these conversations because we are not alone in the things that we experience or the things that we feel. So Michelle, Vic, how are you? Great. I'm great. <laughs> and I'm all right. Yeah. Um, I was just touching some debt earlier, so I feel good because gardening is fun. Yeah, touching dirt, ground. And speaking of grounding practices, um, when I facilitate spaces, I always like to give Iba, um, which is Yoruba for reverence or homage um, to the folks that brought me here today, to the folks that brought us here today. Um, so have a little bit of water right here. Um, and those of us who practice many different traditions, I practice Isheshe, believe that water holds a particular power. Um, so water has no enemy, right? And I want to usher into the space the folks who brought us here. So Iba to my ancestors, um, those of many different backgrounds who brought me here today, Iba to those that we've lost in movement spaces, Iba to Jordan Neely, who was just murdered at the hand of a 24-year-old retired Marine in New York. Yeah. Yeah, Iba to our ancestors. Um, but to hop into things, who is Michelle Mack? Uh, the last time I was here, I had a whole answer and I can't remember it because... You know, we're meant to be evolving. <laughs> and I'm a different person now than a yoga. So um, who am I now? <laughs> I am, you know, I haven't really thought about it. Um, and I give a little bit of background because I've kind of taken some time off to just recalibrate and kind of try and figure out who I am, uh, what's important to me and why I do the things that I do. So I guess in, at this time, that might be a little bit difficult for me to answer, but I think who I am is proof um, of, of a lot of different things. It's proof of, for instance, my parents' love. It's proof of my ancestors' Um, resilience, it's its like in this moment, I feel like I am proof. And I think that can be interpreted many different ways, but more than anything, I think I'm proof of rest. 
because I feel quite rested. Um, so it's a, there's a spectrum of, of who I am in this moment today. That was beautiful. That was a little word. Okay. <laughs> and also, where are your people from? If you want to share that, I think that's important to bring to the conversation too. Yeah, Michelle, did you want to add that? Or? Cool, yeah. Um, so my my folks are from Zimbabwe. So I am South African-based, Zimbabwean-born. Yeah, um, who is the... It's a good question. I feel like I wake up every morning <laughs> trying to answer it. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm 24. Uh, I'm Garifuna, American. I'm Black. I'm Afro-Indigenous, Afro-Latino, um, I'm transgender. I always list those things because I wake up every morning as those things and they impact the way I move through the world every day um, and how the world moves through me. Um, I live in New York. I'm from New York. Um, so I really appreciated you bringing Jordan Healy into this space, uh, Destiny. Um, I think I'm a carer. Um, I'm a lover, I'm a cancer rising. <laughs> what <Okay>. else? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I liked what you said about proof, Michelle. I have a uh, tattoo on my chest that says "here." Um, it just says "here," and it's because it's like I always figure that's the best thing I can be. Um, and there's a lot of things that didn't want that for me. Um, and it's the one thing that that I'll always be and that I can guarantee being is present and here. So I'd say that's who I am. <laughs> this is so touching. I'm like, wow, that was a really beautiful response. I feel really present and grounded in the moment now that y'all both express that I am proof. Hmm, there's a lot there. Um, speaking of these things, Tell us a little bit about the story of you and your role in this movement. Um, paint us a picture of the landscape that you organize and advocate in. Um, I know, Michelle, you're in South Africa, right? Um, Vic, we're both here in the U.S. Um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about the landscape and your role in the movement. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start just, <laughs> just to do it. Um, yeah, uh, I've had a long time in this movement. I'm 24 now, so it's coming up on a decade of being a climate activist, which it's like hard to say you've done a decade of anything in your life when you're only 24 years old. Um, but yeah, um, a lot of my journey kind of started out with just learning about the basic principles of climate justice and then looking at who I am and being like, sorry, <laughs> and being like, you know, this is not an issue that I can ignore. It's not an issue that I have an option to ignore. Um, it's an issue that impacts people that look like me disproportionately. And I've always just had like a strong sense of justice, like, and fairness almost to a fault at times. I mean, I grew up all the things that I am in like a 98% white community in upstate New York. And so like fairness and justice had to be really important to me or felt really important to me. Um, so I started getting involved in New York City and that snowballed into me getting involved on this federal lawsuit um, suing the U.S. federal government for their contribution to the global climate crisis. Um, 
which snowballed into talking on a lot of big stages and going to a lot of places and meeting a lot of really cool, dope, interesting people, uh, working for awesome nonprofits to kind of try to teach young people about climate justice, the way that I was taught and the way that I was activated. Um, and I would say my like position in the movement, like as I'm starting to understand it more and being allowed to understand it more now that I'm more independent as like an older activist, still young, but on the older end, um, is definitely, like, I think a relationship builder or relationship holder, like, uh, and the storyteller, um, for sure. Hmm. What about you, Michelle? Ah, Vic is 24 and I'm 23. And that's the first time anyone in my age range has ever said is an older activist. So I'm like, ah, <laughs> It was me too. I'm also 23. I was like, ooh, wow. That's <laughs> I'm like, ooh. But we are out here. No, we are. Um, cool. So I always like to start my story with kind of like with my parents and how I ended up here and like how I ended up being in this space. Um, but actually with their parents. Because all I've ever known of my grandparents has been what we now term sustainability, which is weird because kind of like how I got into the space was out of rage uh, because people were normalizing sustainability and it was this cool new hip thing. And I was like, hey, on, but my family has been practicing and doing this for the longest time. And mainstream media just didn't reflect that. It reflected other people's experiences, which were so far removed from the vast majority. Um, but how my story starts is kind of, so it's in Zim, where uh, if you're familiar with the history of Zimbabwe, you would know that so many people have left the country because of economic, um, what is the word? Fruitlessness, I guess. It, it's just a lot more viable to be in a different country than it is to stay and rebuild. As so many people say, or like, go back and make your country great. And so my parents, my mom, uh, I think starts to move between the two countries around 2003, 2004. And my little sister was a year old uh, and kind of around 2007, 2008, that's where my dad joins her. And then they kind of then become based in South Africa while we're still back in Zim with my grandparents. Um which means for the greater part of between 2008 and 2010-11, uh, I wasn't with my parents because they were the side until they then decided that we would come to South Africa. I was actually initially meant to come here on holiday and then would go back to like boarding school. Uh, so that's kind of how my story is. My parents start doing like really humble jobs so that they could take care of us and, you know, relatives and family, which is something that hasn't kind of changed even now. And then I come to South Africa and it's the first time I realized that I am different in terms of skin color and race and that sort of thing, because Zimbabwe is a majority black country. And in a majority black country, you aren't black. <laughs> you are just a person. So I come to South Africa <laughs> um, in Cape Town specifically, and I then discovered that I was a black person. And that's kind of, I guess, how my journey kind of starts and how I end up in the movement is that 
I started wanting to understand a lot of different things, including how there were different communities for different people um, based on race, because we know that in any country, anyway, really, you do have different places for different people, but maybe it's because of a different tax bracket, whatever the case might be. It was the first time I was taken aback by the fact that people could be categorized by race, which was something that I was still trying to kind of figure out. Um, and so in high school around 2015 in South Africa, there's like a whole natural hair movement thing that starts because one school had said, you can't wear your natural hair out to school because it's too distracting. It's too big. People can't see the board. And I, in the part of the country that I was, uh, I want to say the teachers also started to catch on nonsense. I don't have a different way of putting that. And that had us kind of relook the school code of conduct and why it spoke only of hair that fell and not mine that grew up. And I think that's kind of like my earliest mo- memory of, of um, activism because we fought hard to make sure that you know, our experiences and our identities were also kind of represented in the code of conduct. So by the time I left high school, um, it was something that was set. And immediately after that, I was very heavily invested in the idea of Pan-Africanism, which I still am. I very much subscribe to that idea. Um, and I started reading up a little bit about different things. Uh, and that's where I discovered cloth pads, cloth menstrual pads, because at the time I wanted to solve the, I still do, wanted to solve the menstrual period poverty problem. And that's kind of how I then end up in climate activism because I then start learning about, you know, this issue of sustainability and where the rage then came in. Like, why would you call this sustainability? And I guess that's kind of where my activism really started. And it mainly started because I wanted to see more people who looked like me, spoke like me, had the same experience as me being represented in a movement that inherently sought to help us even though mainstream climate activism might not necessarily, and by us, I mean black people. Um, So I'll keep on saying us and I'll be referring to black people. Um, And that's kind of how I end up here. Yeah, you too. Um, I just, I do also want to make sure you mention African Climate Alliance, like your work there. um, What's your role is in that space? Uh, Yeah. So I advocate with a group called the African Climate Alliance and At the moment, I am a program manager there, Um, but more than anything, I am an activist with the group and we advocate for Afrocentric climate literacy. Um, Again, the whole issue with mainstream activism doesn't necessarily represent our experiences in the global south or in Africa specifically because that is where we work. And so one of my responsibilities, though, one of my main kind of roles is to ensure that we develop climate literacy resources that speak to our experiences, A, in the global South, B, in the greater Africa, and C, in South Africa specifically, because there is a literacy issue, but there's also a climate literacy issue. And um, I think more of my work with with, with the group is probably going to come up as I speak. Um, but yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about identities so far, And on the topic, I'd love to know, what do you envision when you hear the word youth or when people refer to youth? 
Um, and what are the pros and cons of using that descriptor in certain spaces? Yeah, when I think when I think about youth, um, and I don't know, it's so interesting because so much of my identity has been like tied up in being a youth activist for like so long, like since I was 14, and that being like the main descriptor of me and that being how I had to show up and the people I had to represent. Like um, when I spoke at the UN General Assembly, like I was the, the for the signing of the Paris Agreement, I was the youth speaker, the sole youth speaker for this. Like, I think that could be kind of, kind of talking to like what the issue is at times with using youth as a descriptor, but what the benefit is. It's like, I'm glad I got to be there and be the 17 year old there. But um, kind of like Michelle alluded to, like, I don't have, you know, there's only my, I only have my lived experience. And then a lot of times I think young people are expected to speak for so many young people's lived experience, which varies in like infinite ways across the planet. Um, And so I think that that's like part of the limitation of just relying on somebody being young to speak for young people, Um, which I think like a lot of organizations, conferences, businesses, whatever you want to say, institutions, like as they're trying to bring in more youth speakers, like don't want to challenge themselves with considering which youth speakers they're bringing in as long as they're bringing in. Um, And uh, yeah, I I think like when I envision youth um, and what that looks like, I feel like I've been lucky enough to meet so many activists like throughout the time I've been working. And I would say like, you know, I I think there's like, there's always this discourse around like, what is the cutoff for being a young person? And I feel like if, you know, unless it's, you know, completely out of like, completely doesn't make sense. I think people should be able to determine that for themselves. Like if they still feel like, you know, as long as they're not taking advantage of that notion to take away like space for people who might be younger than them and have more of a, relate, a, a relatability with like the general term of youth, then like people should be able to determine that themselves. I think once we start trying to put like bookends on it, there's always people that are going to feel excluded. And, you know, sometimes that needs to happen, but um, I don't know if in this in particular case it does. Um, but yeah, I guess that's my take on, on youth in the movement. Yeah. Um, Michelle, what about you? Um, what, do, what do you think or who do you think of when you envision youth? And I want to tack on to that question, um, thinking about how people want to be in proximity to young people or to say they, you know, have the next generation involved or they desire to. But like, who's actually helping us build capacity? Um, and so, like, are young people listened to or supported or are we used? Mm. Mm. So one thing I'm trying to practice is to not mm, the whole way through, uh, because Vic, when you were speaking, I was just like, I had to mute myself because I was like, I 100% relate to everything that you've said. And especially the part where there is a certain expectancy that is placed on young people to be the voice of all young people, which is a bit strange, to be honest, because when you look at more adult spaces, you find that even adults do not expect one adult to be the voice of all adults. Um, So I wonder why that's any different for young people. But in South Africa, it's definitely the same struggle. So everything that Vic, you've said, 100%. 
what does make it slightly better is because of the constitution, I think youth is defined to be anyone who is below the age of 35. So in our work, that's kind of what we go by. So even when we are maybe hosting in-person workshops, whatever kind of spaces that need young people to be, we, depending on the kind of space, we can create cutoffs. We can say this is for people who are younger than 25, for instance, or people who are between 20 and 35. Um, so that's kind of just from a, from a youth perspective, from a, from a work perspective, I guess. Uh, from my perspective, I think when I hear the word youth, I'm looking at young people, I'm thinking of young people. Um, and I think then it becomes subjective. Young in what, in what sense? If you're looking at majority of African presidents, you'd find that the average age is probably over 65. Uh, so my mom, who's 42, would be youth. <laughs> so it kind of then becomes um, subjective in that way. But I think within the context of the climate movement, I think it's any young person who is young enough to care about their future. And I think that's where the 35-year-old bracket sort of comes into play. Like, for instance, myself, I use myself as an example. I am young enough to care about maybe I want to get married one day, maybe I want to have kids. What kind of environment do I want to raise them in and that sort of thing. People like my parents don't necessarily have to worry about that because they have an adult as a daughter, so to speak. So in that way, they would not qualify as youth. I, I hope I'm making sense, but that's kind of how I, I, I think about it, especially when I design spaces and create spaces for engagement, spaces for exchange, uh, knowledge exchange specifically. I think about young people who are young enough to care about their futures and not just from like a career perspective. Uh, because one thing I really love about this generation of young people, we are trying as much as possible to put ourselves first. Um, yeah. So there's, there's that. And I think the, the, the second part of the question around people wanting to be in proximity to young people Oh, are young people being listened to or even supported? I think it's a yes or no answer. It depends on which spaces. So yes, in terms of other young people trying to build capacity for other young people, that's kind of what my life's work at the moment does. Uh, so in that way, the resources that I create, the spaces that I hold, they are informed by young people who say there's a need, this is what we need, and so we do that. When you look at high-level decision-making spaces, you don't necessarily see that. So I really quite like that Vic said that he was in sort of like the UN office and um, your, your, when you were narrating your work in, in activism quite early on. Um, and oftentimes in those spaces, you might be heard, but not necessarily listened to. And we see that I mean, in our countries, we see that in many different contexts that young people are not necessarily being listened to. They might be heard, but whatever they say, their suggestions might not necessarily be actioned. And there's a certain urgency that young people have. And I think that's what excites a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, a lot of older people, the energy that young people come with, the passion for change, um, but they aren't necessarily willing to take the time to understand or even enact change. 
So I think that's where the yes or no for me comes in. And I, I, and I still, I mean, there are a lot of things that I find strange. And I think the need to be in proximity to young people is, is, is one of those things, especially from like really old people. Well, let's talk about it. We here. Why, why is that strange? <laughs> <laughs> it is strange. It is strange. <laughs> it's, it's strange for me because if you look at the different contexts, I think there's a lot of performative activism. There's a lot of tokenization that comes with being a young person. So when an opportunity comes my way, I have to think like four or five times about whether or not this is a good opportunity or whether or not it's something that's come my way because I'm about to be tokenized, right? So I've had to sort of develop this this extra sense to sense things that would uh, potentially tokenize me, which I don't think that that is a fur burden for young people to carry. And I think it's strange in the sense of if you really, and that's where I speak about youth being young people who are young enough to care about their futures. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily see that, or my experience has been not necessarily seeing that with older people. So when they've stopped caring, all of a sudden the younger people must care. And because of that, we're going to be so close to them. And even when we are close to them, we're not capacitating them or we're not even creating an environment for which they can enact change. And we're not even supporting this idea of change. So, and we now being like these adults. So I think that's where the, 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 it's, it's strange. And then there's this whole idea of like, we should all be in collaboration or what? I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just, I want clarity. Hey, you gotta, okay, look, that was a word. And you gotta ask the questions because what's at the root of these things, right? When it comes to like values and ideology, like the foundational things, you you have to ask the questions to understand the intention and to really know if you're in community with folks. Um, some of the things you said, I just think about how like, oftentimes young people are bastardized by elders or folks who should seemingly support them in their efforts because their ideology is different or because they just have a particular way that they want to go about it, you know, Um, or things are gatekept, right? Um, And that kind of makes, leads into a question I had around lateral violence. Um, So if you feel comfortable sharing, um, what are your experiences with lateral violence um, in this movement. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to know your experience with this, particularly as young people, um, because in the previous episode that we released, we heard from Anthony Rogers Wright and Tara Hauska um, about their experience with lateral violence um, as folks who, who are older than us, you know, and who have been doing in some cases this work for 20 years or more. Um, Vic, I know you mentioned a decade, right? So what are y'all's experience um, and how does that make you feel as a young person in some cases to be, yeah, I guess bastardized, as I mentioned, or even um, looked down upon? I think if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, because um, how would you define lateral violence? That's a good question. <laughs> um, so in our last episode, Tara defined lateral violence as harming each other or directing things at each other, mm-hmm. Right rather than like supporting one another or rather than um, fighting against the systems that, you know, we've had conversations around usurping together, taking down together, um, and potentially even as Anthony mentioned, kind of like a paradoxical osmosis of like taking on attributes of the oppression that, that we fight and utilizing that against each other. So that is more so what I mean yeah. by lateral violence. Yeah, I think I would say... 
you know, I've loved it. I, I think how I would, what I would say is I've loved every organization that I've worked at, like while working in the nonprofit sector, but there is this inherent thing with the nonprofit sector and working in it where, where like, you know, the way, what we we're saying our values are and what we're saying we're going out into the world to do, like so much of the way we function inside of nonprofits is like antithetical to that. Like, um, in like a lot of ways, like more ways than I could even list really. Um, like it's so inherent to it. Um, and it's, and it sucks because, you know, on one end, you know, you could be outputting work that you feel like is fantastic and like impacting young people that in a way that you feel like is fantastic. And then turning around and sitting in meetings with your coworkers and your bosses and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> like this is hard. Like I think I've never, I've never been with an organization or seeing an organization function without people on staff experiencing some level of whether it's dread or feeling taken advantage of, or, you know, starting to question what, it, the goals of what they're doing is it's like, and, and, and like I said, it's, it's not just some organizations and some organizational cultures. It's like the culture of nonprofit organizations. Um, and so I, I would say that like, if as an example of where I face, where I've felt like I've faced that kind of just, you know, going home after, um, Going, not, I always work from home, but after work, just being like, you know, I did feel really good about all of this. Obviously, I wouldn't be a climate activist if I didn't, but suddenly me doing my job doesn't feel good. I feel drained. I feel exhausted. I feel like I wasn't understood at some point today. Um, I feel like somebody didn't listen to me at some point today. Um, yeah. That's why I think it's actually really important that more non uh, environmental nonprofits start to unionize. Um, and I think I've been interested in seeing that start to kick off more in the United States. But yeah, that would be my answer. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, Anthony mentioned unionizing as well. I think we've had a couple of guests on the show talk about their experience. And I agree. Um, Michelle, what about you um, and your experience with lateral violence or just your take on the realities of that being present um, in the space? Uh, so again, I 100% echo everything that Vic was saying uh, because I have experienced a lot of the same uh, or similar stuff. Um, and while you were speaking, I also just maybe wanted to name something that we might not necessarily be able to always name. Uh, and that's, and I think it's it's also this kind of new season of, I guess, my life. It's weird, it's weird, but like this new season of my life where I'm also wanting to learn about myself and the ways that I could also be perpetuating lateral damage. And so I was actually thinking of some instances where I have been the perpetrator because oftentimes when we do have these conversations, we do speak about it from an experience of us being on the receiving end and not, not, and not so much on the um, giving end, I guess. And I wanted to mention this because I tend to be a very dominating character. Like I have always been that person. I, I mean, anyone who knows me <laughs> will tell you. <laughs> um, and so that comes with a lot of, I think, conviction. So if I am set on a goal and I want to reach it, 
I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that that happens. Or maybe in the past, that's what I, I was doing because I don't know what happens from this point on. And that also meant that there would be aggressions that come from me. So maybe even to the point of bullying and to the point of being heavy handed, so to speak. And I think also having worked in many different NPO environments uh, and having seen that, not just from me, but from others who I'd worked with. I think that's just something that I wanted to mention, that those things do exist as a duality in that. So we can definitely all be fighting for the same cause, but we might not necessarily all be on the same page of how we do that or how we do things. So it will definitely result in conflict. Uh, then I wanted to speak a, a lot about the culture of NPOs as well. And there's just this very weird kind of universal language that people who work for NPOs should be underpaid, which I find to be very, very odd. Um, <laughs> Vic, I see you. Yes, it is so odd because... Like I've had to kind of, you know, I think over the last three years, I've had to investigate my relationship with getting compensated for the work that I do, A, in the movement, and B, as a person who might care for that cause, but is still sort of getting commissioned to do the work that maybe I would have done anyway. So then there's that weird sort of universal language of like people who work for social good to sort of like just be donating their time and, you know, they can't eat because why would you eat if you're an organizer, right? So like, it's, it's just really strange. And with a lot of that comes these feelings, I guess, of, I don't want to say worthlessness, but something very close to that. And that doesn't just come from the internal. It also comes from the surroundings. So if you are working, say, for instance, as a very uh, big example, if you're working in an NPO, and maybe your work is not as valued as maybe someone else who is a step higher. You will find that you're going to be experiencing that. Um, those are just examples. And I think that those are things that we really need to start changing, um, especially if we want to change the culture of how we interact with each other and how we work. I feel like rest would still be needed, but the rate at which we we burn out and then need rest. And even when we do rest, we don't get enough time to recover is like as a direct result of these environments that are being created because A, the work is not valued and B, the person is not valued. Um, and I see this a lot. I don't know, like there's, there's this very weird sort of expectation that black folk should be educators. And I have just started to not subscribe to it um, and, and I think that also comes in NPO spaces and like spaces that are charged with like energy that might be related to race, identity and other different things and other identity factors that play into it. So it's just for me, I think it's a lot of different things and a lot of the same things like for me. Right. Here's an example for me. If a non person of color were to ask me to educate them, I would see that as violence. Um, and I have been in spaces where I have been asked and upon refusing, I've been made to feel a specific way that I did not appreciate or even like. And I think those are some of the violences that we really do need to name because I think our countries, our contexts, in as much as they might be very different, I think there are things that stay true. 
And it's this expectation of like black folk being educators, especially when it comes to issues of oppression, issues of, of, of marginalization, issues of race. And I think that is a kind of lateral damage that comes A, in the climate justice space and B, in other social organizing settings. And it's not often spoken about. I think there's a fear around it, um, which is why I'm 100% glad that this is the conversation we're having now um, is with Black folk because there's a, there's, a, there's a calmness that comes with it. Hmm. Yeah, we're family. We're a community. Um, wow, y'all said a lot. Um, and I really appreciate you, Michelle, for bringing up, like, oftentimes we don't talk about when we're the perpetrator of lateral violence. Um, or harm. And yeah, I just want to acknowledge that I too have been someone that has hurt folks that I care about in movement spaces or otherwise. Um, and it was attributed to me or the root cause of it was me not being able to show up for myself. Um, and again, I know we were checking in before this about like, how do we do that? Or like finding ourselves and being so young and having all these expectations Vic was talking about basically the nonprofit industrial complex and how inherently like white supremacist the structure is to name it. It's, it's a really difficult uh, construct to work in when you're working for, for liberation, when you're working to change systems, to work inside of one that is inherently like this capitalist, white supremacist, all of these things um, and expect them to bend or mold to, or that we can, you know what I mean? Like we can change things, don't get me wrong. But also I think we have to acknowledge the limitations of certain um, institutions or systems that we're in as well. And I don't think I see enough of acknowledging the limitations of the nonprofit industrial complex to get us so far and to be young people um, and to be told that like, this is the vehicle of operation that you need to use. You need to form a, a nonprofit, a 501c3, um, or whatever that looks like in different countries and confines, and you need to function like this. And then also not being resourced with the legalities, the legal tools to know how to navigate, or even how to manage an organization, or how to be a leader. Um, like speaking back to the expectations on young people, that's something that I think about just knowing that I was 19 when I started Generation Green, um, or 20 when it publicly launched, but I was in college. You know, I was a student organizer, but I was trying to make sure that my friends had full time jobs graduating college and didn't have to go work in white racist institutions because we had had enough of that already. Right. Um, just as interning or just as like being in proximity or having folks come into our communities. And that just has me thinking about how the nonprofit industrial complex like didn't support me or didn't support the folks that I've been in community with and organizing or us on this call in like not internalizing those systems of oppression that we're fighting against or those things that we're fighting against for social change. Um, and then touching on what you mentioned, Michelle, about rest and recovery. I think that is an even bigger thing to talk about recovery. Rest and recovery are not the same thing. And I'm going to have to sit with that and take that to my therapist next week because I've been thinking so much about rest and taking rest, but have I recovered? Like, what is the, what is the process for recovery entail? Um, and in thinking about that, I want to get into this next question around how recently we've been discussing the impact of burnout in our community. 
um, because of recent reporting done by Climate Critical in their climate burnout report. Definitely go check that out. Um, if you haven't already, you can find it at climatecritical.earth slash report. Um, Tamara Tozo Laughlin founded the organization Climate Critical. I'm also on the board there. Beautiful report, very disheartening. Um, in our previous episodes, I've also talked about this, but bringing it all back, can the two of you talk to us about your experience around burnout, um, around grief, uh, climate related, but in general, and how have you been able to navigate through that? How have you been able to implement rest and or recovery? Yeah, I can um, start with that. Because I can start with that because there was a long time where the idea of burnout to me, I think before I, before I experienced it, I didn't really understand what it was. So the idea of it to me is I was like, that can't, that's not going to happen to me because I'm just, why would I stop? I imagine burnout as this instance in which people are like, you know, this is getting, you know, have a conversation with themselves. They're like, you know, this is getting really hard. I'm going to take a step back. And in my head, I was like, I wouldn't like, no, why would I do that? And then it wasn't until it was happening where I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what it is. It's not necessarily like this conversation with yourself. You're like, I need to take a break. It's like, for me, at least, it was just more consistently feeling less capable of doing what I wanted to do. Like, like more con- having more days where I just woke up feeling sad and like I didn't want to do the work. It wasn't like, oh, I need to take a break. It was like, I can't do this. <laughs> like, I can't do this right now. Um, and just coming to that realization was a lot where it was just like, I'm, I think for me, it manifested. It was like, I feel like I'm becoming less good at this because I'm not taking care of myself. And so I'm less capable. And as I'm doing worst and worst of a job at what I love, I'm feeling less and less good about it. It was like, that's kind of the way it went. And, and which it's so, when I think back to it, I think it's like young naivety too, you know, like doing this since I was 14, 15, 16. I was just like, why would I ever need to stop? I've been, you know, killing the game, <laughs> like whatever. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, like I do need to, I can't just run off of good vibes and positivity. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, uh, <laughs> So I, I, I feel like I could speak to that because it was more like recent for me. It was like literally like in the last year where suddenly I was like, oh, I'm going on less trips. Like I'm doing less stuff. I'm speaking less. And it's like, oh, probably because you're answering your emails less, probably because you're dreading your emails more because you're not taking time to like, you know, it just, it was like seeing the full cycle of what it could do that really made me realize how like what burnout actually looks like. And I think like, if anything, I wish that, I mean, it's nobody's job to teach us everything, but I wish that that's, I understood that more. Like that's what, that that's what burnout looked like. And it wasn't like just stepping back. I think, I think in my head and like, I had this toxic idea that burning out was like giving up when, mm. and when really it's like, once you experience it, you're like, no, it's, it just happens. <laughs> like It just happens sometimes. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's been like my personal journey with burnout. Are we the same person? <laughs> I guess we all experience the same thing. <laughs> Glad we're talking about it. See, folks, that you are not alone. You are not alone. Uh, uh, mine, mine has definitely been very similar. Um, and I think 
being a very ambitious person. And I, I think I have many different goals and I'm constantly chasing a lot of things at the same time. And I think that in some ways I've always experienced burnout and I didn't know what to term it exactly as you said, like you just feel not up to it and you feel like you're sick and because you're sick, you can't do this and because you can't do this, like it's a whole cycle and you can't break it until you really understand what's going on. And I think for me, my experience has definitely been trying to push as much as I can while being burnt out. So it means the quality of the work that I'm producing is not at par. And when it isn't, it means that I feel like I'm failing when in fact, all I need to do is rest. And I think that a lot of the not really understanding what burnout is and issues around mental health and taking care of our mental health also comes in forms of these structures that are oppressive. I'm sorry, but I think a nine to five is oppressive. I've always thought that. And and I think that it doesn't leave enough room for us to rest and recover. And I think I'll touch on that a little bit later. But in, in the systems, we even see it from like school, right? Even when you're younger, you're in school from eight to three, maybe four, maybe even six sometimes because you've got extracurricular activities. And even after that, you're expected to do your homework. So there's the cycle of just always going and you can only rest for eight hours when you go to bed and you wake up and the cycle continues. So you are in this very unhealthy cycle for five years in your high school, maybe six, maybe less for other people. And then you get into university and it's the same thing over, right? So the workload of university, because I'm studying part-time and also working full-time and a lot of different things and organizing and like, there's a lot that happens in my life, but it's a cycle of constantly outputting work. That's tangible. You can say, because of the time I put in here, these were the results. And I think that that's where the unhealthy for me cycle kind of starts. And I think for everyone, because we are all kind of manufactured in these processes, so now you are in university, maybe you're a working professional, ends are not meeting, you have to get a second job, maybe even a third one. And even in that, you are literally running and it's not even vibes anymore because you've run out of vibes. You are running on, I don't know what it is, um, but I think it's, it's pure. I, I don't know <laughs> what it is, uh, but you need to survive. You need to make things happen. And so you, you sort of become a shell of who you are. And I speak to this because at some point I was juggling three jobs and school and still had to show up for my family and still had to show up for friends and still had to show up in many different spaces, right? And it just did not make sense. And when I couldn't do that, I thought back to like maybe my high school days where I could play volleyball and I could play soccer and I could play hockey and still be in the debate team and still do my schoolwork and still like be at the dinner table. But there were just moments where I couldn't be at the dinner table because I was too tired. And even when I tried to rest, it, it, it was not impactful enough for me to feel any different. And so, and then that translates into the way that we organize, especially as people who work for social good, is we often don't have a break. We often, do, it's just going. We break when we sleep and when we wake up, we are at it again. We don't often have the privilege to take time to understand what rest looks like or what recharging looks like. Because I think when you rest mindfully, you recharge and so you recover. And we often don't have time to understand what that is, what that means, because it is individualized. And in these structures, we often don't have time to navigate those spaces and navigate who we are. And so 
I think that's what it is. And I think what rest is, is being able to recharge. Um, I am a very extroverted person, but in, this is an example, in spaces where I have to be social with people, I get depleted. And so I cannot be in social settings three nights in a row. I will not be able to. And I think that's the same thing. That's the same sort of way that we need to look at the way that we show up for work you know, organizing spaces and other such spaces is you cannot keep going for three years without taking a break. And is that break even meaningful? Are you just taking a walk outside? What what exactly does rest look like? And I think more and more young people, especially in organizing spaces, need to take the time to understand what rest looks like for them and what recharging looks like for them because then they'll be able to recover, which means that when they come back into the space and there's nothing wrong with taking a break, I see so many young people who are in organizing spaces, they beat themselves up for breaking. And I think that's that NPO complex that we were talking about is that we are not allowed to rest because our labor is supposed to be cheap. It's supposed to be free in some instances. It's supposed to be always available. And so young people never have time to actually navigate these spaces. And so when you have sort of figured out what rest is and what recharging is, you're then able to fully recover so that you are the way that you contribute is a lot more meaningful. Um, and I think that's, if, if to all young people who are listening, that's something that, take three months off school. It will still be there when you come back. I'm thinking about how thankful I am for Tamara and for some other mentors that I have who have taught me about rest um, and incremental rest. And now Michelle teaching me about recovery, right? Um, I'm also thinking about, I wrote something I was journaling maybe like a week ago um, and it was actually about rest um, and about labor and time. And I just kind of want to share it to really cement what we're saying here. I wrote, not being burnt out means spending more money to take care of myself. And this is my personal realization, right? Um, This isn't bad. This is just a new reality that I'm recognizing as I'm taking time for myself. For example, getting my nails Mm -hmm. done is self-care. I like that. Um, As they say, time is money. It's a privilege to have leisure time. I'm really sitting with this about the interconnectedness of rest and leisure, about rest in the eyes of my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, and my father, about how I wasn't taught how to rest, how I didn't see leisure as something I could do, as something my family, immediate and extended, could do, as something Black people I knew could do. Rarely, if they could, you know, I knew back then that what I now call leisure was seemingly reserved for people who had money and or status. This is actually maybe the first time that I had a recognition of class. So in talking about rest, recovery, leisure, I think about privilege and I think about class. Um, And I'm also thinking about how different identities marginalized play into that as well as we've been talking throughout this whole conversation. I'm also thinking about timing, right? We just went kind of still going through a global pandemic. Um, I don't know where we are in that stage, so I don't really feel comfortable saying post-pandemic, but we have lived through that and that drastically disrupted our lives. Personally, I dropped out of school in the middle of the pandemic because white supremacists were showing up to DC every week I was trying to take classes online. I was living with folks that I didn't really know like that. Shout out to them, very extended family who let me live with them when I had to move abruptly out of my dorm in like two days, you know? 
Um, and also I was running an organization that I had just started. I had a job here. I was running, I was working on this podcast also. I was interning. I was doing a million things. I was doing a lot in the middle of a pandemic. And I had to drop out of school for my mental health and my physical health because I was actually experiencing episodes of paralysis because I wasn't taking care of myself. And I have a history of being a stress addict, which in many cases, doctors say is just as bad, if not worse than drug and alcohol addiction. So as we're talking about burnout, as we're talking about grief, as we're talking about all of these things, I also want to be honest about my experience to let folks know that we're not alone in this. As Vic, Michelle, and I are sharing, I'm 23, Michelle is 23, Vic is 24. And we have already in our lives navigated such beautiful and draining things. And we have accomplished a lot. And there's a lot of expectation that comes with that. Ooh, excuse me. Look, getting choked up. A lot of expectation <laughs> that comes with that. Um, I want to think about, yeah, I want to sit with that a little bit. Um, and there's also a quote that I saw today from Yasmin Cheyenne, author of the Sugar Jar book. It reads, I'm learning that if I'm always looking to what's next, I'll never get to enjoy the right now. Planning for the future doesn't mean ignoring the present. And then personally, I'd like to add to that based on the nature of this conversation, saving the future doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't enjoy mm. the present. Yeah. So in thinking on that, part of being young is becoming your own person, finding yourself and having a good time. Where are each of you on your journey with this and how have movement spaces supported or hindered this? Um, I don't know. I think I have somewhat of a unique but not totally unique experience of like with how long I was doing this work and the position I was put into. I think that I really had a hard time developing a sense of self for a while or like separating my sense of self from climate work because um, like, I don't know, my life was like being on the lawsuit and then doing speaking and stuff. Like I would miss school a lot. <laughs> like I, I remember um, to speak at the UN, um, to speak at the UN, I missed my part of my junior retreat, which was like this really important field trip that our whole class went on to bond. And, you know, it's like crazy thinking back on it as a, at 17 though, I was really like speak at the UN General Assembly or go on the school field trip. And it really meant that much to me, you know? And like, obviously I chose to, <laughs> like I ended up choosing to go to the UN, but just kind of those like sacrifices. Um, I think a lot about having had to make um, growing up. Uh, I dropped out of college because I was traveling so much. And like, also I wasn't really, I wasn't really messing with college that much either, but anyway, <laughs> like either way it was significant. Um, and it was like a significant thing that I had to like give up on. But on the other hand, um, I would say I found so much sense of myself in the other people I met in those in movements. So even if I didn't get to be home with the people that I, you know, knew best, I was meeting people that I wanted to get to know that well in like all these awesome places. And like, I've made some of my, the best friends I have in my life, like that I only see two or three times a year. 
Um, you know, when the climate movement decides to squat up in the U.S., it's always like you see everybody once it happens. <laughs> and like, yeah, it, I think those are those are experiences that I can't like um, that I can't take for granted. Like knowing so many people and feeling like I have such a community in this movement and like learning how to be in community and learning about myself, like and how I interact with the world. Um, so I think that. It's there's a part of me that's still learning to like separate my identity from like from being a climate activist, being a youth climate activist. Um, and then also it's so much of it is inherently so much of what makes me me like kind of like I started out with the whole reason I did it is because I cared a lot about justice. So that's something that I learned about myself as I was doing climate work. Um, and also like. What I think it was helpful for me to, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin. And um, after I left school, I still stayed there. And that was really helpful because I got out of like New York um, and I started really focusing on what was right next to me instead of having to always focus on this like big picture, like always doing climate work that was about the United States and about all the young people in the United States or then going overseas and um talking about like young people in the U.S., just like the talking about this huge umbrella, I finally was like get, able to really get in to mutual aid and grassroots organizing right where I was. And it like t- taught me a lot. Also, it taught me so much about the work as well and taught me so much more about like my values in the work um, and like what my values are and what I believe is like what I believe can be changed because so much of what I've thought was influenced a lot by like the adults around me who were great mentors, but who also like, you know, and this is not saying anything negative. It's just true. We're using me as a mouthpiece for their agendas. Like, I don't think that's <laughs> it's just, it's just accurate. Um, and so then I got to form, uh, I think like I've gotten to form much more of my own, theories of change and ideas. And that's been really fun to like lean into um, because it's made me learn more about myself and who I am. So I think that was a little back and forth, but (laughs) answered the question. Thank you for that. Michelle? Oh my goodness. Um, So I had, I am, I, I count myself as one of the lucky ones because my identifying with the climate movement only lasted a couple of months. Um, which is great because in those months I was trying to turn my whole family to be vegans and it just, it, it, it failed. Um, and not that they're not, not that they're not conscious. <laughs> they are, they are some of the most conscious people that I know, but it just, you know, yeah. Anyway. So I just wanted to name that I am grateful that I did not get a chance partly because I was not a climate organizer from a very young age. And I think that's kind of helped. Um, but I think there's, there's, there's a lot of things that might seem maybe even silly to some, but there are so many things that I'm learning about myself, like how much I love receiving. Like I have always been a gift giver. I love to gift people things. And I've just always expressed myself in that way. And I didn't realize how much I enjoyed receiving stuff. Like it was in this week that I realized that sunflowers and roses are such a great combo. And I, I, I love it. I love it. And I think these are some of the things that I'm learning to 
kind of, you know, take in. Uh, and I think just from the perspective of being a, a young person who is in movement building spaces or even organizing spaces, I think there's a lot of pressure to become great. There's a lot of pressure to stay great. Um, there's a lot of pressure to just not evolve. And I don't think it's always said in that way, but there's an expectation for me to have the same amount of energy that I had when I was 18. And that might not necessarily be named or spoken out loud, but I do feel like that comes from a lot of, when people go, we want a young person, Michelle. I'm like, no, <laughs> Michelle's an adult now, <laughs> as I've just learned. <laughs> Okay. No, I've just learned. I've just learned from this podcast with Vic that I'm an adult. Um, um, <laughs> no, but really, it's it's things like that. Is that I have kind of been learning that there are things that like about myself. There are things that I used to identify with that I don't anymore. Which is why I think at the beginning I struggled to kind of pinpoint who I was in this moment um, because I've just kind of allowed myself to kind of evolve. And part of having fun as a young person is discovering who you are and what you like. Right. So saying, you know, pause on the pressure and just not engaging in a lot of the things that would otherwise be expected of you. Like I am very thankful for my folks because they've always created an environment where I had to find out who I was first before I subscribed to a lot of different things. Um, so they've just always nurtured the part in me that needed to understand my identity before I went and subscribed to things and other different identities. And I really am so grateful because it's allowed me to also be grounded even in the movement, right? Uh, because a lot of times, especially in the climate movement, you it's very easy to start advocating for things that might not necessarily be at the core of who you are or even of your context or even of your uh, experiences. And that's where I say like in that first couple of months where I was trying to be everything and whatever else that was just not practical from many different perspectives. I'm thankful that I had that experience because it helped me realize who I wasn't. And so now I'm a lot more comfortable kind of settling into who I am as a young person who likes to get gifts, who loves to get paintings as much as um, gifting. But I think more than anything, I'm realizing that I'm, in, I'm, art, I'm an artist and I think we all are. Um, and it's, it's strange, it's weird, it feels a little bit uncomfortable because it's not a part of me that I've always embraced. Um, although I've always known that we all are inherently artists, like we are that before we're boxed into all these different things. I've always thought of myself as this more analytical person and even like my school reflects that. I'm a computer science and applied math student and I mean, I love it, but there's so much more space for me to be everything else. I can be an artist and... Uh, at the moment, I'm trying to venture into content creation. Uh, but before any of I know, um, in addition to all of that, I'm realizing that I'm a maker, right? Like I like to use my hands for things. And that's not something that's always kind of uploaded. And that's okay. Like I'm so comfortable doing things that people might not think is trendy or like doing things because I want to do them, not because I've been influenced to do them. And I think for young people, it's so important to get to a point where you're like, what do I like and how do I get to a point where I can do it? Um, I'm trying to just, I think where I spoke about proof earlier, I'm trying to exist in such a way. In fact, I'm not trying to, I'm existing in such a way that then a younger person who maybe looks up to me can go, hang on, I can be a doctor who paints. I can be whatever else that I want to be and still be artistic. And I think fun comes in so many different ways. It isn't always indulging. 
and in harmful practices. Like, and I speak from a very biased perspective when I say this, right? I come from a hyper religious, hyper spiritual perspective, and we don't. And I want to put that disclaimer, uh, and I don't indulge in like. Um, you know, substances that might alter my consciousness or whatever it is. I mean, like drinking and like whatever. So I don't indulge in that. So I wanted to say that so that when I spoke, um, there would be context to what I'm saying. And I think a lot of young people, and I've seen also um, my context, a lot of young people engage in these things. Um, they use it as a stress reliever and I can understand. But who are you when all of that is not there? Who are you when you're left with yourself, when you're looking at yourself? Who are you? What do you like? What do you not like? How do you show up without uh, all these different crutches? Um, and even though I'm like hyper-religious and hyper-spiritual, I do have like my own crutches. I will rather put a plant in lecker instead of doing stuff that I need to do, right? So I think it's, it's a lot of that and it's a lot of realizing and... Yeah, a lot of it is practice, really. I mean, we can speak all about how we find ourselves and like how we can enjoy and like semi-enjoy, but a lot of it is practice. And I think a lot of it has first to do with discovering who you are before you align with specific ideologies, especially in the climate movement. I like it in the climate movement because I don't think that's something that's always spoken about. It's like when you're an organizer, automatically you're supposed to be advocating for everything and everybody. But like, I love tree huggers, but I don't have the privilege to be hugging trees. Do you know what I mean? Like I cannot advocate for hugging trees mm. in the same way that I would maybe for adequate housing or like access to education or like food, like, you know, so yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> oh my gosh. Time goes so fast. <laughs> And so much has been said here. I really hope people like practice deep listening. Um, I'm just reflecting on like my last year. It's, we all been going through it. <laughs> you know, I know some of us have like been checking in a little bit with each other periodically when we like had a, a breath of capacity. We've been, we've been going through it. Um, and also working on ourselves and growing into ourselves. Like the last year, I took a break from organizing and organizing spaces to just like take care of myself to figure out what rest is, right? To figure out what I need for rest, to implement rituals for rest, um, to get deeper in my spiritual practice, same as you, Michelle, right? Doing initiations or doing things that align me more with who I am or just discovering that. Getting a life coach. I had a life coach at one point. It's great. I would strongly recommend, right? Um, taking retreats, going home to see my family, being on my ancestral land. I've been to the mm. continent a couple of times. Um yeah, like I also really got in touch with realizing I'm a creative and I knew that, but I put a lot of who I was on hold or in the back of my brain or in a bag somewhere because I was organizing and I put my community first and I put the people that I was in close proximity with or that I was organizing with first or I put the cause first and I didn't put myself first or I didn't know how to take care of myself and do that. So like you, I've also been doing that. I've been making music. I've been having fun. Um, I've been outside. I'm trying to get outside when the weather gets it together, though. Um, DC is not nice right now. Don't know what's happening. I want you to know, um, I want you to know my mom was a massive fan of what you just said. <laughs> oh, hey. Hi, mom. Look, we have a generational conversation. Um, <laughs> you have an amazing son. You have an amazing child. They are incredible. Um, 
if she's still listening. But as I was saying, so much has happened and so much has been discussed in this conversation. I want to leave us off with your vision of what it looks like when people are able to rest and recover. And then let us know how people can follow and support you. <laughs> That's the way we look at it. I'm like, Vic, come through. <laughs> I think I think I actually do. I, I I have something. I like. I feel like you know. It's not, it doesn't even have to be complicated. It's like I, I think a lot of what this conversation is about is when we show up better for ourselves, we become better. And you know, being human is like seeing reflections of each other in all of us. You know, and so it's like. When you show up in the world a certain way, it even if it doesn't feel like it, it somewhat does something for how other people show up in the world. And it's, it, it encourages that empathy building and neighborliness and care that like we should all be exhibiting when we can also just be, be our best selves. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it's like I, my vision of of like what rest and recovery looks like, you know, outside of an individual is also just a world in which we can be more willing with each other. And like willingness is so much of what it's going to take to combat the climate crisis. Willingness is going to be so much of what it takes to change a lot of the things that are wrong right now. Um, And yeah, I think like for me, I know the best version of myself is the one that moves with the most grace and patience and willingness. And like, so if I could put that out there and encourage it in other people, that's a world I want to live in. And everyone wants to live in a world in which they feel reflected in the folks around them. I just wanted to sit with that for a minute, you know, because wow. I just got to breathe. I'm like, yeah, no, that was real. <sighs> Also, Vic, where can people follow and support you? Oh, yeah. Um, well, my Instagram is just at Vic Barrett. And that's probably where I post the most. And you could catch up with me the most. Um, and like if if anything that I said feels like it resonates, especially um, I'm pretty easy to find online, to find talks that I've given online. Um and that's a great way to get to know me better. And also, I'm not, like I, I don't consider myself a very inaccessible person. Like I might come off that way if you look too much at like some of my presence online. But um, always like my Instagram DMs are always open, like to just hear what people have to say or what they think or if they want to talk things through. Um, like I said, I'm a I'm a talker, communicator, storyteller. So like, yeah, <laughs> that that's that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like somebody's odds. Yep. <laughs> um, Michelle, what about you and your vision of a world where we're able to rest and recover? And then, yeah, how can people follow and support you too? Um, I think I can speak about, first, about a world where I've rested and I've recovered. It's one where I'm able to cultivate sisterhoods and community. Uh, I've recently realized that that's something that I really, really wanted. And, like, I just, I don't feel like I'm lacking necessarily but I do have a desire to be in sisterhood and in community and that's something that I am going to try as much as rest and recovery will allow me to be able to pursue and even cultivate um and I think for people I think a world in which where we've I think the same question for like 
people, basically my vision for that is people who are able to show up authentically as themselves in all of the spaces. Um, I don't think that we are necessarily able to do that all the time. And I don't think we are able to do that as much as we should, which is very little. And yeah, definitely echo everything that Vika said, especially about being able to show up authentically and as yourself and then allowing other people to do the same. Um, I also think it's a world in which it's a world in which we're able to break free of a lot of the systems that keep us in the cycle of needing to rest so much and recover so much and not being able to do it still. Um, and so part of the work that I'm doing now personally and in the organizations that I get involved in is trying to rediscover how we can manufacture systems of support for people and how people can create those systems for themselves because it's not always accessible for me to maybe get a therapist or maybe even a life coach. And I think that's the reality for many young people. Uh, but if you can, definitely go ahead and do it. I'm looking into it myself uh, because we do need those support structures. Um, there's like this very weird sense of individuality and that's not it. It's not cute. It's not right. It's not it. We are meant to be in community and it's, it's, yeah, for me, it's a world where people are able to pursue that more intentionally. And yeah, um, I've been in spaces where people have tried to contact me and have been like, I'm so sorry, I'm getting back to you like three months later. I just have not been able to. And how many times am I going to say that a year? Like four times. I haven't been able to speak to that person the whole year then. And that's something that I personally am trying to change, which means I'm being a lot more intentional with rest because I've understood what that means for me and like how I recover then. Um, and then, yeah, how people can find and or support me. You can find me on all the things. I've written a couple of articles. So if you search my name, Michelle Maka, you'll find me on Instagram as well. Um, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty open. I might take a little bit more time to respond because I don't always see requested DMs. But if you try to find me on Twitter, you might have a worse time because I'm not on Twitter as much now, uh, but definitely Instagram. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on YouTube as a content creator. So like reach out there. That's, that's my name, Michelle. Follow you girl. Follow that's you what girl. I'm doing. Um, but yeah. And if you would like to check out some of the work that I do and maybe the organization that I'm currently involved in um, at AfricanClimateAlliance.org. You will find us there. And again, if you search my name, that organization should come up. And how you can support me, I think, if you can find ways to support yourself, I'm speaking to all the people listening now, if you can find ways to support yourself meaningfully, I think by default you'll be supporting me because that's kind of the work that I do, I guess. Um, I exist so that more people can show up for themselves and have all of these structures. So it didn't work it's difficult but it's worth it in the end um yeah oh uh, i just i want to hug y'all i know we virgin i'm like ah. <laughs> wow <laughs> i love y'all i appreciate y'all i see you i hear you i feel you thank you for your time for your energy for your sacrifices it sounds like we, we talked a lot about sacrifices that we made for this work um and I'm just so happy that we're in places where we're resting, where we're finding ourselves, where we're taking the lessons that we've learned over the years, 
from organizing or from just living. And we're implementing them while we're still young so that we can enjoy the moment and be present. If you're listening, I really hope you heard us. I hope you are listening to us deeply. And I hope that you are finding ways to implement rest and recovery for yourself to implement care and repair, um, to go deep inside and to do the work, to do it. Like Michelle said, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And those are our guests today, Michelle Maka and Vic Barrett. And I am your not usual host, Destiny Hodges. Thank you for listening. Be well. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.